All right, we are back for another episode of It Never Hurts to Ask. I am here with Josh Kemp. Yes, sir. Um, Josh has led uh, a fascinating life that I'm excited to dig into. Um, you, uh, I guess to start, you started off as a soldier in the Army Infantry? Yes, I was a um, 11 Series uh, Infantryman with the U.S. Army. Awesome. And then from the Army, Josh went on to join the... Uh, Infamous or controversial private security group Blackwater, now known as Z. Is that still their name, or have they renamed it again? Oh, no. Z was uh, just a temporary T-shirt change. They've changed it a couple times since then. They are now Constellus Group. Okay. Okay. Some rebranding. For sure. And then after getting out of the the private security game, you've become a restaurateur. For sure. For sure. I'm a partner in a um, full restaurant and brewery called the Brewer's Table in uh, East Austin. So we're going to take some time. We're going to dig into all of that. Um, Just a quick uh, notice to everybody listening. You might hear a little bit of a a hissing in the background. It's, you know, 101 here in Austin and AC's on full blast. So I do apologize for that, but it is what it is. So um, let's get started. Um, The Army. Uh, What years did you serve? Well, um... I was in from 03 to 07, uh, but just for a quick stop before we get deep, because I know that we're going to, uh, I need to cheers you some of this whiskey to uh, <laughs> to Anthony Bourdain. I was going to get, a, that was going to be one of my we, next uh, early questions. We but lost one today. Yeah, so today we learned uh, Anthony Bourdain uh, unfortunately took his life via suicide according to initial reports. Um, actually, you know what, I'm glad you mentioned that. Let's, let's dig into that first, especially given some of your life experiences. Um, were you a big fan of his, I assume? Oh, man, absolutely. I uh, followed him all the way through. I followed his wife through her jujitsu trials, and uh, just he's made me want to go places that I never even considered wanting to go and eat things that, you know, I might have otherwise at the time not had. And uh, just just all the about his candidness, the way that he approached people and didn't just go to that guy could walk into a five-star restaurant anywhere in the world and be given a table at the chef's table, but yeah. he spent like a half or a third of some of his epi- episodes in a, uh, in a in a in a family's home, you know. And there was something special about that where I thought he always stayed connected, and that was powerful for me. I've been watching a couple clips today. One of my favorites was actually him getting introduced to Waffle House, I guess, because he's from up north. <laughs> Somebody's like, you got to try Waffle House. And he kind of scoffed and and he went in with an open mind. And by the end of it, he was like, no, yeah, no, I totally get it. This is great. <laughs> and I was like, me too, Anthony, yeah. me too. <laughs> I, just, I feel like I just got closer to you, Anthony. <laughs> he, uh, I've wanted to travel to Vietnam. We're going to talk about some of your travels because you went on, I guess, over the past year, you went on a pretty epic trip throughout Asia, which we'll get into a little bit later, but Anthony Bourdain, like Vietnam was somewhere I've wanted to go. And then watching some of Anthony Bourdain's travels only made me want to go that much more. Yeah. He made you feel it. He, it wasn't uh, a glamorous or, or exclusive, like it was too far away. He, he really made you feel uh, connected and like, this is something that I could do. And I could walk into a place that Anthony Bourdain was. He could make, he could make some real shitholes feel like... <laughs> <laughs> feel like home which is yeah. quite a talent it is he, he could go to skill. liberia and you'd be like i'm pretty sure i could have a good meal down in liberia let's <laughs> let's check that out yeah, i hear they've got good bread this will be, this will be cool <laughs> so so yeah r.i.p mr bourdain yes, sir. um yes, sir. 
That was rough. Yeah. First thing I woke up to this morning, I was like, shit. Well, this this breakfast is gonna suck. Yeah, it was. <laughs> oh, I'm I'm this weekend. I'm just gonna binge watch all of his stuff. Yeah, yeah. I was um <clears throat> I was talking to a friend of mine about that earlier today, and uh, I'm interested to now at this point because I in this last semester I've kind of fell off. Um, so I really want to go back and look at his maybe, I don't know, last 12 episodes of, uh, or interviews that he's done in the, in the, in the recent, uh, past and see maybe if there were some changes, if there were some yeah. things, because I have a genuine interest in that in my field now, um, to see if there were, you know, triggers or, you know, he talked, he, he was super real about his tendencies, yeah. about his darkness. So, um, I don't know. My maybe kind of there. completely uneducated reckless speculation we all know he was a heavy drinker i wonder if maybe he just in a state of you know heavy intoxication took that step you can't back out of you know that's it's very possible and and it was more than just the drinking he was really clear uh, in some of his episodes you know with with millions of of viewers he would say you know i was i was in this place in cairo 25 years ago doing heroin in this you know particular place so he he had quite a history, but he, he was clear on it, you know, and, and he, he even talked about suicide. He talked about his daughter, you know, being the reason why he, he wouldn't take that, that step. So there's just a lot we don't know at this point. Yeah, it's it's sad. Um, I guess I'll use this as a friendly little PSA. Um, suicide prevention hotlines, call them. If you're feeling down, talk to your friends, even if it seems like they don't want to hear it, they do. Um I come from a family with with some pretty serious mental illness, um, so I empathize. Josh, I believe you come from some circumstances oh, yourself. Yeah, the epitome of it—the uh, backwoods Texas uh, men don't cry, I'll suck it up, you know, sort of a thing. So the people who don't want to hear it are the people who need it the most, usually. Yeah. Uh, so, so on that note, let's cheer it up a little bit by by shifting to the army in Iraq and Afghanistan. Yeah, let's do that. <laughs> oh <laughs> man. Um, so Army, 2004 to 2007. 03 to 07, 03 yeah. 03 to 07, yeah. I'm sorry. Uh, I had a fairly strange childhood. and Yeah, uh, let's, let's dig into that, and then we'll get into Josh joins the Army. Oh, man. Um, so it was my... Your parents both, did both of them die pretty young, or? My, my father was never around to begin with, and then uh, my mother passed when I was 17. Yeah. Uh, so the time period in between that um, was living with my mother. Um, I have a younger half-brother and sister, and uh, lived with my grandmother, who was kind of the matriarch. And then when she passed, uh, when I was eight, uh, everything, nothing was great before that, but everything just went to hell. We needed social services. We were in and out of women's shelters. Um, we lived in the uh, south side of Beaumont, Texas for the longest time. I went to a all-minority um, elementary and middle school, so I was, you know, cracker and whitey pretty early and on. And not only that, but you're like the epitome of white boy because you're a oh, ginger, yeah. too. I'm the like, ginger <laughs> white dude. It was... It was carrot top and and fire crotch and and you know anything you could possibly imagine. I was I was that guy. So yeah. So you can't even fly under the radar as a tan white boy. No, you got it extra hard. <laughs> yeah, not happening. Uh, so were you, when you were in school, going through all of that, I'll call it drama, conflict, for lack of a better word. Were you? Did you excel in school, or were you a fuck up in school? Like, how were you academically? 
I excelled in school, but I was always hampered by my behavioral performances. Um, you get in a lot of fights? I got in a lot of fights, and teachers didn't like having me in the classroom because I made a point, because of how angry I was, I made a point out of being able to pass anything that they gave to me with minimal effort and, and kind of screwing off the whole time. It was like a... I feel really bad about it, you know, yeah. at this point now. But I, it was a, it was kind of a challenge for me, like a, a screw you to the system. I was um, one of those kids too. I can yeah. ace the test, but fuck your homework. Fuck yeah, the I'm not busy trying work. to hear all this. I'm, I'm throwing pencils at people, and you know, and and, and the whole bit. Yeah, it was, it was definitely there. I just had a mouth on me. Oh, me too. Yeah, it yeah. was. I, I would talk, but yeah. I was suspended most of middle school. I got my <laughs> shit together to a degree. I didn't really even get my shit together in high school. I just realized, oh, I can stop showing up. And they don't really do anything, really. Yeah, yeah they, they had instituted that uh, the attendance policy going into high school. Uh, otherwise, I, I probably would have done the same. Oh, weekend. I served several weekends of, of detention to make up for my absences towards mm, towards yep. my senior year. But What would they call it, uh, ISS, in-school well, suspension? Or, that or? was, I dealt with that in middle school. This was strictly, uh, I, 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 maybe it varies from school district, but basically... My senior year, I actually did okay grade-wise because I realized, oh, i got to get my shit together for, for college. But it was – they would add up all your absences, and towards the end of the year, they would just go, oh, by the way, you missed 18 days of school. you got to show up to detention on Saturday – all-day detention on Saturdays for X amount of days to basically make up for the days you missed. Oh, man. That's actually – a lot better than what's happening now, though, because now kids that miss too many days, their parents are being uh, citationed and fined and stuff, and I've they're, heard they're that missing grades. I, I think that stops at a certain age. I'm not sure. I'm talking 89% out of my ass right now. <laughs> I feel like I, I, I know that's a thing, especially at younger ages, but I was 17, 18. I don't think. Yeah. They hold the parents liable at that age, or I could be dead wrong. Yeah, I don't. I don't know either. I've just uh, heard a lot about the the truancy laws and the yeah. regulations that they've added. And in the high school that I went to, um, there were cops on hand all the time because of the violence. And uh, I mean, they would regularly cops would show up to a classroom and 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 pull somebody out of the class, you know, and put them in handcuffs in the hallway, sort of a situation. So they, uh, they have cameras in all the halls and all that. Yeah. So they, they're really trying to knock it out, but I went to a really shout out to Richardson High School in Richardson, Texas. <laughs> I went to Richardson High School, which was it's got to be one of the most diverse high schools in Texas, if not the country. Again, wild speculation, but we had something like 140 nations represented. Um, that seems like you a lot, had yeah. you had rich white kids with mommy and daddy's money, and then you had some of the poorest of the poor. White, uh, I want to say it was like 48% white, 25, 35% Hispanic, large African-American population. Then we had a large Turkish population, Asian population. You had some of everybody in this high school, and I'm really fortunate for it because you get exposed to it, just like you did at your high school. You get yeah. exposed to different cultures rather than, I had a friend who went to school in Highland Park, the Dallas area, one of the richest neighborhoods in the country. And she said, bleached out. She yeah. said she didn't meet a black person until she was 13 years old, which see that that was kind of the opposite of my experience in my childhood is I didn't have any white friends uh, growing up. Yeah. So I grew up in a you know, predominantly African-American community. I lived the 
the house connected to the SPM, South Park Mexicans, like, okay, where we, we could, I could like look over the fence and, and watch them do like music videos and stuff. Nice. So, yeah, so I was, was gonna say, so, so at least you got Kiki and you dope know, music taste. Yeah, there was there was a ton that you know happening there, and then um, moved from that to uh, Vider, which if anybody knows anything about Vider, it is the uh, mini Jasper of uh, Southeast Texas uh, up until the early. I would say 2000s, if you got off on I-10, you know, a, a major highway, the largest in the U.S., I guess, uh, and you took a left off of the highway and went down about a, a quarter of a mile, there was a billboard that was, sat right there for a really, really long the time. The sundown laws, right? Yeah, it said, uh, welcome to Vider, don't let the sun set on your black ass, yeah. up until like early 2000s. So I moved from having no white friends to moving to a place that black people weren't allowed. Yeah. Uh, and it was just, it, it, it really taught me early on diversity and it taught me early on that, that ignorance doesn't have a color. It doesn't have a shape. It has a face and that it, it that's it. Like you have to treat people, um, on their, on, on what they provide, on what they give, on what they do and not, not anything else. So yeah. I, I got that lesson early and it really helped me in the service. And for people listening who aren't, from the south or even people who are from the south but a little bit younger and and not as as read, well read on this the history sundown sundown towns i guess they were called um were all throughout the south uh not it wasn't just a texas phenomenon but basically if you were black you should not be seen out in public after the sun goes down um you were subject to arrest police harassment if uh, you had a kkk in the town best, they would be yeah. they would be up your i mean there were kidnappings, there were draggings, there were noosings. I mean, yeah. there were, I remember uh, going to uh, Vider Middle School and getting on buses in the morning and seeing uh, burning crosses from the night before that people had put in people's front yards, I mean, on a school bus. Now, so having grown up in Beaumont, I assume despite your your ginger <laughs> your ginger background, you were able to make some, some friends, probably oh, a lot sure. of black friends. Oh, it was both, yeah. So yeah. growing up... In your younger years, having those black friends and then moving to a town like Vider, seeing burnt crosses, what kind of, how did you reconcile that conflict within yourself? Because you have to have, I mean, coming from someone with more experience with people of color, did you realize how backwards and fucked it was even at that age? I, I did, because um, even at the time before middle school, we had bounced uh, all over southeast Texas. We were in Orange. We were in several different places in Beaumont. Uh, I was at a lot of different school districts because sometimes we were living in a, like, you remember the week-to-week -week hotels? Yeah. Sometimes we lived in these week-to-week -week hotels, or if things got really bad with somebody that my mother was dating or whatever was going on, then we were <clears throat> we ended up in a women's shelter or, you know, the, the whole bit. So I, it was a gift and a curse getting to meet and deal with that many people that early on, but it also made me feel really um, isolated because I could never fall into a circle as soon as I felt like I was as soon as you're getting along with black people I, I, now you're yeah. in the middle of Clansville and USA. it's done and then and then you and, and flip the script a couple of times like that so and it was hard for teachers and you know social circles and the whole bit so while I did get used to um, falling into place with just random groups kind of like a chameleon and, and you know and getting along with these people it had the the positive effect of uh, letting me see early on that 
that, yeah, that, that this is ridiculous. Like, Assholes come in every color. They come in every color, every <laughs> shape, size, and color. Yeah. They come in orange, as we've learned. Yes, they do. <laughs> yes, Shout they out do. to President Fuckface. Yep. Um, I don't know about you. I'm going to top off my drink. Oh, here, I got you. Oh, you're the man. All right, so so how did uh, how did your mother pass away? Uh, my mother had a, well, her childhood was rather interesting as well. Uh, she grew up in a town in North Texas where the water was really bad, where, I mean, they, they lived on a ranch and, and rode horses their whole lives and, mm -hmm. and that sort of a thing. So when she started to get older, she had a um, pretty severe uh, spinal allostasis, which is a, a degenerative disc disease. So she had it, and uh, this is the early, uh, mid-90s, and um, it what got... Part of, what part of Texas? At this point, she was in Lubbock Amarillo. So no, that's where she grew up? Yeah, that's where she grew up, yeah. Okay. Um, off there, in a ranch somewhere, I'm not really clear on. Uh, and then when she moved to Longview for a while, and they ended up in southeast Texas. And then um, it, her disease got really bad, and also there was a... She had a drug habit from dealing with the pain, you know, and yeah. the whole bit. So it was a lot of pills and uh, a lot of smoking and, uh, you know, cigarettes constantly. So she coughed and hacked and uh, ended up getting emphysema from exposure, had uh, lung cancer, and then dealt with uh, the spinal stuff. They went in uh, mid-90s. You couldn't, you couldn't sue anybody at this time, right? So if something happened in a hospital, you didn't have a lot of recourse. You know, if something went bad, they would just tell you, you know, we're, we're, we're sorry. So she, she went in to get a thing called a frontier posterior fusion. Mm -hmm. And they went in uh, from, that means they went in from both sides and they put a frame around her spine and put screws in. And when they went to take the screws out, one of them snapped off. So she had a screw in her spine and they couldn't take it out. Uh, so she spent the last few years of her life not being able to lift anything over five pounds or drive a car or anything. So it was just this rapid... Uh, Degeneration Jeez. that she had to deal with, and uh, it put me in a position. They put a, a morphine pump in her, and also gave her uh, opioids. So she would be on the opioids, and the morphine pump would hit, or vice versa, and she would just go like total blackout. Yeah. So I spent a really long time uh, between, let's see, thirteen and seventeen, um, cooking meals and trying to figure out what we were, you know, when we were going to get my younger brother and sister up for school or waking up in the middle of the night to make the, sure that she hadn't lit a cigarette and caught the house on fire. Yeah. Sort of a thing. So, uh, just, which ended up helping later on, you know, I, I got into a boot camp and, and you know, with, with the army when I went in and, uh, I was like, this is a joke. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like this is whatever. Oh, I've got to do push-ups. Oh, you know, I don't know. So what was, so circle back, what was it that actually, what was it your mom actually passed away from? The coroner's report said that she had an upper respiratory failure in her sleep. So it was uh, so a So one of those were the opioids, just kind of slow your breathing down to the point you don't take that next breath type deal? Could have been. Could have yeah. been. that They, they weren't uh, very clear on it. They said that she could have had a coughing fit to the point where she asphyxiated. Oh, um, yeah. Or... You know, or yeah, she it just could have she could have overdone like we were talking about with Anthony. Like it could have been she took that step that she couldn't take back. Yeah, either one of those is possible. Yeah, damn. So, so your mom passed away. You're 17. Yeah, uh, she passed away uh, November 2nd of uh, 2003. Uh, 
or November 2nd, 2002, and my birthday is October 3rd, and I just turned 17, so we, we had just signed me into the delayed entry program. Uh, so you already knew going in, like before her passing, that that was the the career path you were going on? It was. It seemed like the only course. I certainly wasn't going to get into college, didn't have the money for it. I, I participated in a wrestling program my last two years in school that wasn't funded and there was certainly weren't there there aren't any uh, scholarships in the state of Texas for that you know it's uh, if we were in Indiana or something it might have been different yeah uh, so I knew that it was going to be that or I was you know going to end up dead or in prison and I, I felt pretty confident in in my in my choice so you joined the army yeah um got some questions about that um you're a pretty intelligent dude from, from all of my interactions with you. Well, thank you. <laughs> Don't let it go to your head. Oh, no, no. Um, but I, I understand. So you, you join the military. You take aptitude tests, intelligent tests, a battery of tests. The ASVAB, as they call it, yeah. I was, I was told once by a, a former Marine that you can, when you take it, you can basically test out as too intelligent for frontline infantry duty because they don't want a real... For lack of a better word, they don't want a thinker in a foxhole. I could, I could see that. You being, uh, you know, an, an an intelligent dude. Did you? How do I word this? Did you sign up one knowing that you wanted to go to the infantry, and when you did your testing, was the infantry where you were headed after the testing, or or how how does that process play out? Oh, that's such an awesome question. I um. I actually scored an almost perfect score on the ASVAB. Mm-hmm. I was switched from my Beaumont recruiter to a Houston recruiter th- that started coming in, and uh, they wanted me to be a bionuclear engineer. In the Army? In the Army. They had some type of job, an MOS, that I still don't know nope. to this no, day. No, it's MOS? Um, it's your job title. It's your skill. Okay, so okay. Um, 18 X-ray, 11 Bravo, you know, 46 Mike. They, they just, it's a... Oh, bionic! What the fuck does I, I make sense in the Navy or even maybe the Air Force because you guys are dealing well, with nukes? But yeah, it could have been uh, you know Abrams shell testing. It could have been okay. uh, you know I I have no idea because we deal with uh, the Army uses white phosphorus and all types of other things. I don't honestly know because at the time I was angry. My mother had just passed away. Nine eleven, it just happened, you know. Like, oh, now was that a was that a nine eleven? Was that a motivator for you? Were you like, I want to go, or was that not uh, somewhat? Because this is it was both. Uh, I was already in the JRTC program, um, Junior Reserve Officers Training, which is like a kind of a you wear a uniform once a week and you go to drills and you know they they kind of prep you for the military. So I was already along the path, and I I, I remember the exact place and time where I was when they were announcing it. We were at a... Uh, 9-11, that is? And when 9-11 happened, uh, we were uh, doing kind of an award ceremony uh, at the Beaumont Event Center. So we're all in uniform, and they actually had a, a large uh, display screen, one of those pull-down screens in the middle of the event center, and someone turned it on. So you've got a bunch of people at this award ceremony and a bunch of, you know, teenagers dressed up as soldiers pretending playing pretend and they started playing the 9-11 footage on the on the news and it was just a moment of 
surrealism like did it kick your patriotism in the ass a little <laughs> bit it it fired it off a little yeah because because i was angry because of my my past and and dealing with what i had I, I i couldn't be swayed otherwise i had a recruiter come in and try to get me to do something else and i, I wasn't going to be persuaded so so fast forward back to you know you're you're 17 going on 18 you're signing up for the army they want you to be a bionuclear <laughs> engineer engineer yeah yeah and so they tell you that and how much latitude do you have to say no fuck that i want give me a gun i want to be on the front line like how does that play out how does that with an asfab score um you can shoot you can only be eliminated from things you can't uh be told specifically what you want to do so if you, so you go, can be too dumb for something you can't necessarily be yes, too, you can't smart be too smart for, for anything and, okay. and, and it may have been the case like your friend said before that uh you could kind of asfab yourself out of something but once the war kicked off or maybe they they strongly push you out yeah. of the trenches yeah. for lack of a better word and this was southeast texas so they weren't trying too hard and yeah. i'm sure and it was iraq in two, at that point in 2003 was iraq already in full swing or yeah, was so it iraq was already in full swing for sure did yeah. that at that point were you was any part of you even in the back of your head like uh, i don't know if i want to get involved with this or fuck iraq or no, i knew that's where i was going yeah. i knew it was not going to be long before i was there and i was kind of searching for it um to be completely candid i uh i was looking for a way out not just from the family life and the bullshit but uh but life, like I, I thought I was going to go out in a blaze of glory and I wasn't going to come back. Mm -hmm. It was kind of my thought that I was going to go over there, do it, whatever it was that I was meant to do. And then I, I certainly didn't think I was going to live past 25 at the time. So you tell the recruiter, hey, we want you to be a bionuclear engineer. And you go, no, nah, I want to be in infantry. I want to yeah. blow stuff up. And they said, all right, here, here you go. And yeah, they just let it happen. Okay. Totally. 100%. They were like, okay, this is what you want to do. Absolutely. Here's, here's the papers. So... You get to, to where did you do boot camp? Uh, Fort Benning, Georgia. It's the only place where infantrymen go. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Sand um, Hill. Do you so boot camp? Um, you you've already done some, I guess, ROTC, junior ROTC type stuff. Yeah. Um, I assume a lot of the people joining hadn't. For sure. When you're in boot camp. I, did you feel out the gate that you had that leg up, for lack of a better word? Just did you see people who weren't adjusting as easily as you were? I would say so, um, because well, they made it fairly clear because some of the people, the people who did a JRTC program, when they graduated basic training, went in as PFCs, which means private first class. Mm -hmm. So if you take all of the enlisted ranks and you break them down from like one to thirteen you were automatically an E3, whereas people who didn't do JRTC were E1s. So you could tell by people's verbiage and that they'd been in the program that they'd been dealing with it for a while. So it kind of came across that way. The ones who hadn't done it were, were sucking. Did, did you ever see people just epically flame out? Because I, I see movies Absolutely. and stuff like, you know, not, not necessarily, uh, what am I thinking of? I'm thinking of a... Uh... Full Metal. Thank you. Yeah, full yeah. metal jacket. Did you? I mean, I'm. Just, I, hopefully, you didn't see anybody blow their heads off in the bathroom. But did you see head cases of just people who weren't mentally fit flame out? Oh, definitely. Uh, the military has the unfortunate. Um, well, let me step back. I don't believe that the military should be recruiting at the age that they do. I think it's inappropriate. Uh, as a military member, I don't appreciate it. Bringing in people that young, you mean? At 17 and 18 years old, before your brain is fully developed, uh, that 
now that I know what I know, I don't. That's I, I don't like it very much. What but age would you, if you know, I President would, Kemp? What age are you setting <laughs> it at? I would say twenty-two would okay. be great. I think twenty-five would be perfect. Sure. But that's where they most of their pool is in this young, influential. You know, that this. this I even thought about joining for a hot minute, but yeah, you get older and you're like, yeah, fuck that. Yeah, yeah, and, and I wonder it, what it does to the would what it would do to the numbers if you get that little bit of extra wisdom under your belt. I think it would be devastating to the numbers. Yeah, um, sure. But it's for my perspective now is that it's not about the numbers; it's about the the, the quality and welfare. It's about uh, the people sitting next to you, and then also guys who are. I was in a I was in Iraq at eighteen. I spent my eighteenth birthday there. I spent my nineteenth birthday jumping out of helicopters. My twentieth birthday, I spent it in Afghanistan. Like I, I missed. Just everything in that period of my life, what's supposed to be is this developmental phase. I spent. And you're also the war and combat and horrors are now going into your development, which yes, when I don't have the ability to properly process those things yet, I'm dealing with them. Which I want to get into that a little bit later after we get through your whole your whole story. Um, So you you get out of basic training, you 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 hit Iraq. and you are an infantryman, you're rifle in hand, you're doing patrols, you're doing, I guess, sweeps of villages, yeah. all of that. Yeah. Um, at any point when you're over there, do you, because I've heard, I've heard this repeatedly from different <laughs> friends who've served or, or people I've encountered, but did you hit a point where you realize, oh, this, particularly in Iraq, oh, this is bullshit, or oh, this is unwanted, or why am I here? Did you have those doubts? I don't think that in um, in Iraq I had those doubts. I was still too um, I was still too angry and headstrong and uh, young and gung ho. Yeah, totally, man. Uh, hard dick, for uh, lack of a better term. So at the time, no, it was more about uh, the camaraderie. I was the wrestling program that I was on was really influential for me. It was a big part of my life uh, when I was in high school and I was seeking that camaraderie again. So finding yeah. it in the struggle was really all that I'd ever known. Like if you, if you take a child who's been abused, right? Severely at any age and you place them in a home that where there is no abuse, their tendency is to create the norm. Even if it's subconsciously, if they move into a home where everything is fine and chill and calm, they're like smashing lamps up against walls and like trying to rile people up, right? Because that's what they—that's what their comfort is. So my comfort was craziness already, yeah. with, you know, in, de- in dealing with what I had. So I felt I felt fairly comfortable. Not to say that I was a great soldier. I was not a great soldier. You know, I, I had a ton of stuff, a ton of baggage, you know, already. Uh, I did what I could, but when they made me a leader of soldiers, I was not great at it. I didn't know enough. I was too young. Like a like a squad leader, or what? Yeah, the t- when I when I made my E five, uh, mm-hmm. when I was a became a sergeant and had people underneath me, I didn't have a not a damn clue what I was doing. So, um, you know, it, it it just was what it was at that point. But um, early on, no, I, I didn't really question it much. Uh, later on, when I got into Afghanistan. I, uh, I actually started to and, and started to study and research because, I mean, it, at that age, had you read anything about the initial Afghan war when you were 18? Or, you know, had you, had you you're, you're asking the wrong person because I'm a <laughs> fucking nerd. Yes, I you, did. Okay. All right. All right. Um, I, I, you know, it's funny speaking. We'll talk about me for a moment, but 
Um, you're talking about how you where you were on nine eleven. Where I was on nine eleven, um, I was in high school. I was in band because I was a fucking nerd. Um, and you know, we hear World Trade Center gets hit. Um, we had, we, they turned on the TV and band. It was a really old TV, real fuzzy. So I, I'm not entirely sure, but I believe I watched the second tower come down. That TV was so bad. I don't know. That's actually what I saw. But you know, by second period of the day, teachers have TVs on. We're watching it, and it was basically understood. If you want to learn today, we're going to keep teaching. But if you want to, if this is, we understand the huge. If you want to pay attention to this, go across the go across the hall. That teacher over there has the TV on. Yeah. So I, of course, being the news junkie that I was, that's where I was. And in second period, I said out loud, I was like, oh, this is Osama bin Laden. Nobody at that time knew who Osama bin Laden was. Not, not just in high school, but most in the general public had no idea who Al-Qaeda was, who Osama bin Laden was. I didn't was. have a clue. I said that out loud, and some, some kid goes, what are you, who's that? No, this was Saddam Hussein. I was like, Saddam Hussein has a standing army. Guys with standing armies don't fly planes into buildings. This was Osama bin Laden. He talked about wanting to do... He tried this in 93 with the truck bombing. He's talked in interviews that he would bring those towers down one way or the other eventually, and he succeeded. Yeah, anything that he could do yeah. to, to strike at the heart of America. Yeah, for sure. and ultimately his goal, and he said this in, in written statements and in interviews and on you know his little Al-Qaeda videos, the goal was not to mortally wound us. The goal was to piss us off enough that we just dump hundreds of billions and trillions of dollars into unwinnable conflicts. Yes. Um, which I feel like, and you're free to disagree, I feel like he succeeded in that. In that way, I would I would say so. Yeah, I don't disagree with that at all. Um, we Because he saw it succeed with the Soviet Union in Afghanistan. Oh, for sure. And, and there's nothing better for an organization than to have an enemy. If that enemy can be nameless and faceless, that's cool too. But to, but to have an enemy as large as America, I'm sure riled up his countrymen and exceeded, you know, and he succeeded in a way that that he, you know, portrayed that he was looking for. So, so you said so he might have been having a blast, <laughs> you know. He, so you served in Iraq. Mm-hmm. Um, now let me ask you this. Um, Having my understanding of the issues and you of yours, Afghanistan to a degree made sense. In hindsight, it probably didn't. But at the time, they were harboring Osama bin Laden. They were harboring al-Qaeda. We got to hit uh, Afghanistan. It's probably not played out in the long game for our best interest. But at the time, it made sense. Iraq made less sense um, because they really had nothing to do with 9-11. You said at the time, you know, you were so gung ho and young and and dumb. Pardon my language. Oh, for sure. Um, I would call myself. You weren't. Real you weren't dumb. having those thing. Those thoughts. You. That's not something you were processing. Given the benefit of hindsight, do you look back and go, "Yeah, why were we there? Why are we wasting my friends' lives, my fellow soldiers' lives?" Like, do you feel like that was a a waste of resources and military talent and resources? Iraq specifically. I think it would be fair to say that a lot of soldiers feel that way. <clears throat> soldiers, but do you? I do. Yeah. Yeah, I really do. Um, and again, I think that if we get 10% of what the truth is, we're lucky. But 
looking back on it now, after going private and having all these other experiences, I really do feel like we traded U.S. lives for private money. And we had very little business there, and we still have very little business there. And if we just never would have done it, that very little would have come from that group of people doing anything they, with what they, with what they, they had they available. No existential threat to no us. No threat whatsoever. Okay. They they they've never achieved anything more than a warlord who was able to control a very small amount of space. Yeah. So uh, unlike, And then you get rid of that warlord, and he was the thing holding that whole powder keg together. Which could have been achieved with a very small group of people doing exactly what they did with Osama bin Laden. Yeah. So I, yeah, in hindsight, and maybe I'm just getting older, I, yeah, I don't... So you, you see you feel that way both about Iraq and Afghanistan? Afghanistan holds, looking at it from a military perspective, Afghanistan has been fought over since the beginning of our cognitive time because it holds so much in resource, in access to other countries, in mineral, in all of these things that Afghanistan holds. So we have a lot of reasons for being there, not justifying why we're there, but I feel like between the two that we have much more reason to be in Afghanistan. Okay. So you, how old are you when you land in Afghanistan? I just, I was 17 when I signed in and then uh, did my last years. I was a few months after 18. In Afghanistan? No, no, excuse me, that was Iraq. Uh, Afghanistan. So you're 1920 in Afghanistan? 20, yeah. Okay. So you're a little bit wiser. You've been through the ringer. How many, now, how many turn, uh, I'm going to use the wrong nomenclature, but how many... Uh, Deployments, tours. Deploy yeah, yeah, tours. Thank you. That's what I'm looking for. How many tours did you serve in Iraq? How many tours in Afghanistan total? I, I did one in Iraq. I did one in Afghanistan when I was with the regular army. And then when I went back in private later, I uh -huh. did uh, maybe a dozen more in Afghanistan. So. Okay. And, and we'll get to that here in a, in a moment. Yeah. So when you're in Afghanistan, you're on your second tour, your second go-round... Did you feel any different about why you were there or what you were fighting for? Or were you still gung-ho and you still got it? Did Being in the country where Osama bin Laden was, was supposed to be hiding, did that make it feel any more worthwhile? Or were you kind of jaded at this point? I knew very little of the difference at that point. They It was all one big Muslim bad guy? Yeah, totally, totally. Uh, okay. we, we had been um, properly indoctrinated, and uh, we were there for each other. You spend so much time there together that there's very little question. It was a club. It was a it was a, a football team. It was, you know, name whatever that Big, thing bad is American for you. soldiers yeah. versus the it bad was, guy. We spent so much time together that it wasn't a, yeah, it wasn't about that. It was our jobs, and we were there to protect each other, and, and, and we were so blinded to what the actual truth was, and at that age, it didn't matter. It didn't you. matter at all. So. Now, I'm going to ask you a couple questions. I feel a little uncomfortable asking them. If you don't want to answer them, I totally get it. All right, hit me. Let's get weird. Do you have an idea? So in Iraq, did you kill people in Iraq? Yes. Did you kill people in Afghanistan? Yes. Do you know, do you have like a number? Do you know how many you killed? Hmm. I don't know if that's something people keep trying to like snipers tend to keep track of kills. I don't know if like a everyday infantry man does or doesn't. No, I'm with direct fire and indirect fire both. Uh, unless you're going and doing specific cleanup, mm -hmm. you don't really know. Do you have an idea? I have a fair idea. 
what, what would you let me let me ask you this in Iraq how a ballpark how many people would you say you killed uh not many like not many under 10 yes, under 5 under 10 yeah 5 ish let's just say under 10 okay yeah cuz we we spent time in um up armored vehicles as well and sometimes there were situations that there's you're firing shots you don't know necessarily and, what and, and turret gunners that have 50 cal machine guns that you go you mow through a vehicle and you don't even know how many people are in it okay or you just see fire and Jesus. Then, yeah, so yeah so, i mean because they're in in all reality there could have been kids in some of these vehicles yeah because they don't you know they don't know any better what's it? so and then in afghanistan Estimate how many people in the army, not counting your private sector. Let's just say in total, it's less than 25. That you directly pulled the trigger and potentially killed? Uh, Well, some of it was indirect, too. Some of it was mortar fire. We had had, um, mortar fire, grenades... You know, the, the, so some of it you you're not exactly sure if if you've got like let's say you've got a contact left like yeah. they call it and you're you're doing a fire drill and you start lobbing two o three rounds which are explosive grenades mm-hmm. and, and are those the ones that shoot out of your rifle or are those well, actual it's the same caliber of round but you can shoot them from the bottom of a rifle but we actually or those ground have, mounted artillery we pieces. have them in turrets now where you, oh, you it's their turret fired so they're, they're belt fed. That's grenade launchers, belt fed grenade launchers. Christ. So it's it's really hard to say I don't have an accurate count. Do you, and please stop me if I'm getting too nosy, but and I, you never hear people talk about this. Do, are, do you have any kills for a fact I pulled a trigger and I watched a man die? Yes. After, within the army? No. This is with your Blackwater days? Okay, we'll, we'll get to that here in a second. Within the army, I'm tr- I'm trying to kind of keep this in phases. But do you ever go home? You get back to your bunk. Do you ever like reflect and have regrets or any kind of emotions on that? Or are you so is, is the training so thorough that it doesn't even quite register that way? Uh, well, I don't know. You know what I'm asking? I, I do. I don't. I don't know of many people. Other than maybe sociopaths or that would be able to do something like that and, and it not yeah. to, to think about it. I mean, imagine, um, let's say, getting in a car wreck. Can, can a human being get in a tragic car wreck and not register it? Yeah. You know, oh, so. Well, I don't, and I ask because I don't know if maybe the, the army tra- military training is so thorough that it does. I don't know. They can't out train the subconscious, the human experience, the, if you will. Yeah, the the self defense mechanism, or they they can't out train that. Uh, we've we've lived for you know hundreds of thousands of years, uh, as as you know, as what we are now. Unless you're one of those like new world Christians that thinks we're. 7,000 years old or something. I don't, I don't know. But um, we, we've lived as we are for a very long time, and, and there's only so much the military can do about that. They, okay. they, they don't often create zombies. They have the ability to make you a sharper version of what you are. But if you are a shitbag to begin with, they're going to make you a sharper version of a shitbag. Did you, did you know people who seem to relish that or in, almost enjoy it or encountered people that didn't take the severity of the situation as heavily as maybe you did? Well, certainly. 
Yeah, yeah. Um, how did you? How did that make you feel? Like, did you have like some private or whatever who almost seemed to enjoy or joke about it too much to the point where you felt it made you feel something? At the time, maybe a little. Uh, it it would just making people aware of what other people were feeling, which isn't an easy thing to do in the service because they don't want any of that. They would rather you just like bottle it up and laugh about it and make jokes and, you know, and fuck around. But, uh, if you saw someone who had already been in something else and they were struggling, you had the ability to go, Hey man, you know, why don't you shut the fuck up? Like you're, you're just, just chill out, take, you know, get out of here, whatever. Um, I don't know if that's too indescript, but, uh, Usually, if somebody had an issue with something that they'd done, they just, you know, they, they kept it to themselves and they, they walked away from a situation and, and, and dealt with it in their own way. But sometimes you had guys who, who, who legitimately reveled in it. Yeah. And, and I can understand that. This is all that they've ever known outside of their parents' house. They were taught to do something extremely well. And when they get the opportunity to do it and to feed into all of that that they've been, you know, it's been, you know, down their throats then it's an ultimate success it's an adrenaline rush it's a you know a proving you know to to go through all the struggle that you did with all these people and then finally get to do that thing you're supposed to do like i don't know i don't know if it feels the same as other successes i don't i've never experienced anything like that but you're trained to kill when you get to kill you feel a little bit of a i i i did it if if you replace the word kill with anything else yeah i was trained to shoot this three-pointer in the finals and i shot that three-pointer in the finals like what are you going to feel like yeah you know so I, I think in that way it's it's a pass or fail i feel good about my success thing even though when you look at it existentially or, or, or hard it's, yeah. it's painful so let's fast forward a little bit so you served in iraq you served in, served in afghanistan um I see you just didn't decide to re-up your enlistment? Well, my, just like my mother, my back is screwed up. So uh, between the the plates and the explosions and, and all of the above, uh, between the two different deployments, I, uh, I got out in 2007 with medical. Um, Honorable discharge, I assume? Yeah, yeah, totally. Because um, I've got two herniated discs and spondylolisthesis just like her and peripheral neuropathy down um, both of my legs and just overall pain with dealing you know 70 pounds a kit and I'm not a big dude you yeah know, so that's half you're, you're what five eight five nine I'm five nine and 160 so I'm not, okay, not yeah. a big dude at all uh, and so that's that's you know 60 or 40 percent of my body weight yeah so it was a lot to deal with and um, cut out of that, and and for people listening, when you say kit, you're talking about your backpack, all your gear, all that shit. Yeah, your um, gun, all that. 150 rounds of ammunition, your weapon, your Kevlar at the time, which was enormous. These big uh, c- ceramic, ceramic plates. Plates. Yeah. yeah have like they? That. Have they? Do they have technology now that's reduced the weight on that, or not as much? Yeah, I, th- I think maybe in the regular. Um, Service, they're still using those, the sappy plates, but I think in uh, specialized units, they move to um, really thin steel plating. Okay. So they've got this compressed uh, steel of some sort. It's what we used. We moved over when I went private. So I, okay. don't, I don't know where the U.S. And that's, so, so that's what I want to transition to. 
Um, let me have you move move your mic just a little bit closer to you. You gotta sure. you gotta kind of be eating like an ice cream cone, if you will. Let's go. Um, well, just to be fair, there was a period in between those two things where I worked at a federal prison. Well, fuck me, man. Why do you tell me that now? <laughs> that's yeah. That's a special. that's a second episode. I okay. I ain't even got the 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 bandwidth. To, I know, right? To put that together that, all my questions. That, that, that for adds that. a whole new spin. <laughs> got a bunch of questions. I'll come up with for that too. All right. all right. So you guys can tune in for episode two of Josh and I talk prisons. Um, but so you get out. You sir, you you work in a fucking prison for a little while, and then. Do you see a, you join Blackwater, is there, do you hopped on Indeed.com and see, hey, we need some mercenaries, or how does the recruitment process for Blackwater work? That was my first question. Oh, man, that, that's, uh, that's interesting. It's actually just almost like getting another job. It's like getting a, a, a federal job or something, like you get on USAjobs.com for a federal job with this. I went to a, uh, a website called DangerZoneJobs.com. What uh, what motivated you to go to that website job, that that job posting? Uh, there was another person uh, working at the prison who was thinking about doing the same thing, and we just started, you know, doing the research and trying to find, you know, how do you get in contact with this company? This, so this you had an idea. A private security might be the the route for me. Yeah, I again was missing the camaraderie. I without a were you missing the conflict as well or was it more both, of the the brotherhood both i was addicted to it when I, when i got out of uh the regular army and started working at the prison that's when my uh my search for adrenaline and craziness just got weird yeah um, i got my scuba diving license i got my skydiving license i bought a motorcycle that was way too fast for me I started cage fighting. And evidently, motorcycles kill a fuckload of servicemen. Yes, they do. I heard they have PSAs and stuff on base about it because so yep. many guys on base die doing dumb shit on motorcycles. They've had to rapidly evolve what is and is not okay with post-deployment because um, when I, even over in my first deployment, it was anything went. And then when you got back, it was the same thing. Anything goes, get back, do what you want. Nobody cared. But then when the military is in the limelight so much and soldiers are coming back and immediately beating a significant other to death or um, dying. Yeah, there were a lot of spousal deaths. Yes. Um, When all of that came out in our current system with all the media, they were like, really crawfishing and trying to figure out what they were going to what they were going to do about this so they so they instituted all of these post deployment regulations so you couldn't be you couldn't drive a vehicle for the first 24 maybe even 48 hours now you have really? to go to these family readiness group meetings uh you weren't allowed to go home immediately situations like that to really um, basically give people like a, some cool down time. Yeah. some cool down, some time out. Cause the, uh, the, the plane ride over is not going to do it. You're still surrounded by, by people who are, you know, excited and, um, I guess reveling or, or crazy about what they did. So, uh, getting that time to yourself or, or with your family in a controlled environment became really important. So, and motorcycles is one of those things, but I were what was the ban on that? Like how long? Could you not ride a motorcycle for? I think at the time, after my first deployment, there wasn't one. After mm-hmm. my second, I think it was 24 hours. You couldn't be in a, you couldn't drive. You couldn't drive okay. at all, anything, uh, because they don't, 
in certain countries, they don't even drive on the same side of the road or you drive completely different than you can actually yeah. actually drive over here. So people were coming back and like pushing people out of intersections because that's what they're used to. Yeah, I've like, seen videos <laughs> of like Humvees just pushing people. And then mm -hmm. you, I watched some video. It was like five minutes of just a Humvee driving up on cars, bumping their bumpers, jumping into oncoming traffic. And you see that and my immediate thought was, well, it's no wonder we're not winning hearts and minds over there. When you're driving to work and some jackass on a Humvee comes up and rams you in the ass. Yeah, we went into it with the expectation that all of these people who are unfortunately at like a third grade reading level um, and maybe a lot of them are what we consider unintelligent, don't understand all the rules and regulations that we're trying to pass on. Like we, we give this, this entire country like a list of rules and then the Geneva convention and all this stuff and then expect them to follow it. They don't understand what the hell is going on. Yeah. So it, it makes sense to me that we're not winning hearts and minds, even if that's what we were trying to do. Cause they, they, they just, they don't understand. So you're in a prison. You're, you're thinking I miss the action. I miss all the conflict, the camaraderie. I'm going to go back on the private side. Yep. Um, Plus get, the money, you know. It, well, and that's that was literally my next question. How much were you, when you left the Army, how much were you making a year? Ugh. As an E5, geez, I would have to look it up. Um, I was still on, on post housing, so I wasn't getting BAH, which is basic allowance for housing, and uh, I ate all of my meals at the dining facility. I think I might have been making, like, Somewhere between twelve and eighteen thousand a year, with your food and housing and everything paid for. Yep. Okay, so you go to the prison. You decide this and dealing with hardened criminals isn't enough for me. I'm going to go back in on the private side. Okay. How much are you making? How much does Blackwater? So let me ask you it this way: You get hired at Blackwater. How much are you making? Uh, when I started with them, I made about fifteen thousand a month. Yeah. So annually, that is. 180 okay you know, somewhere in there how much of the money was an incentive oh quite a bit yeah. i mean other than you know searching for that camaraderie trying to find that that ultimate rush again uh money was big uh, being older and knowing what it was like finally living in the world and and supporting yourself i and not having a, an enormous skill set, it, mm -hmm. it made total sense to, you know, I don't got a lot of shit going on. Why don't I just, you know, go over here and, and bank for a while? So Now, we, and I assume when you're living in Afghanistan with Blackwater, again, your, 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 your housing, your food, meals, all that's still paid for. Oh, yeah. So this is just 180 grand going into the bank while you're, while you're deployed. While you're, initially, it was tax-free. Jesus. So it yeah you you didn't mess around and then but they they shortly changed it. Um, Obama. So <laughs> how dare we make you pay I taxes know, on your I fat know, stacks of money? It's crazy, right? Um, so you're making you're making good money doing. I'm gonna say similar similar ish work to what yeah. you were doing before. Now, for people who who don't know what Blackwater is, um, private w private security company. For all intents and purposes, a, it's a private military, right? In the beginning, 
they were very much that. Uh, Blackwater, they had um, a little group of mini, uh, uh, little birds, uh, you know, tiny helicopters that are yep. extremely fast and quiet, uh, where they did operations, I mean, drug burns with the DEA and stuff with the U.S. Marshal Service, yanking people up, you know, the whole bit. Uh, and then as, as the media, you know, became more prevalent uh, overseas, then it turned into more of a... Um, a little more of a relaxed environment, not so... More security detail work? More security stuff, more executive protection. So mm-hmm. it, it ended up... Um, you could say that, that groups like that, Triple Canopy and all of the above, uh, were multi-tiered. Um, too many hands to count. But now, it's mainly just three. Mainly, now they do um, a an airport detail, which is bringing people back and forth... In an unsafe environment, back and forth to airports. Uh, so you're part of the convoy driving a diplomat to the yeah, airport. Back and forth. Uh, then you have an executive detail, which means you have a particular person that you are with all the time, anywhere, anytime that they go somewhere. So if you have um, a diplomat at the U.S. Embassy, then you're on call, and anytime he's going somewhere to meet, you know, who what's it, and you are there, and you're ready to go, and you take him there, and you wait for as long, if the meeting's 12 hours, and you're there, and, and then you bring him back. Uh, and then the last prong, I would say at this point, is the QRF, the Quick Reactionary Force. So anytime there's a a vehicle rollover, a hostage situation, or you know any type of uh, combat situation, the uh, the QRF is responsible for now, taking care of it. When you were with Blackwater, what was your role? I was on the QRF detail. So you didn't do the the diplomat escorting or, or all that. We got pulled to do those other types uh, of work. I was on an ambassador detail when they needed somebody in the airport when they needed somebody, but um, mostly, for the most part, for the most part, I was on the QRF. Okay. Um, now, did you work with Blackwater in both Afghanistan and Iraq, or all Afghanistan? Uh, just Afghanistan. Uh, they had a little bit of an Iraq presence um, after, you know, the incident. Uh, they've got a uh, an Israeli president's uh, presence. Um, but mo- it, for me, it was just Afghanistan. Okay. Um, Maja Harif, Baghdad. I mean, uh, excuse me. Uh, yeah. Mostly Majaharif and uh, Kandahar. Okay. Um, you're making that money over there. Um, you're, you're doing all that. You you hinted earlier that you've... You know you've directly killed people with Blackwater. Do you have an idea of how many people there? Yeah, I'm not going to go into that one. Okay. Can you give me a very, very wide ballpark... A range? Not very many. Okay. Yeah. Um, Being a little bit older, a little bit wiser, did killing people with Blackwater affect you emotionally or psychologically any different than Iraq? Or at that point, is the training again so ingrained? Like, did you go home and sleep the same with Blackwater as you did with with the Army? I would say... Strangely enough, that it didn't affect me as much. Really? The money helps you sleep better? Uh, maybe. <laughs> I'm teasing. Yeah, maybe. Uh, I, I became more comfortable with it, and maybe that means that I told myself better lies. Okay. Yeah. Uh, it, 
because it's another one of those things that the, I believe that humans can, pain is a great instance, that humans can grow comfortable with anything very rapidly. We have this ability. When you look at all of the greatest uh, serial killers. The Nazi, not to compare Blackwater to Nazis, not but at all. the same. But yeah. You can, yeah. once something has happened once, then it becomes this sometimes slow, sometimes really rapid escalation. So it, I would say that I had grown a little more comfortable. Yeah. I dealt with those demons because there was a, a period where I was doing something else with the prison and, and and I told and amped myself up and said, hey, if this is going to be the case, then I need to be completely prepared. And You're and trained to kick ass and take names. You're going to kick ass to, and take take names. I was all right at it. Yeah, <laughs> I was okay. Um, how many years did you serve with, or did you work with Blackwater? I was with Blackwater from um, 2012 to 2015. So about three, three and a half. So you had about, what's that, about five years where you're doing the prison thing? Yeah. Between, okay. Um, did you enjoy your time with Blackwater? Well, they moved from Blackwater to Z and then Z to Academy. All oh, while well, you were working there? Uh, yeah, I caught the back end of Z. So uh, it wasn't actually Blackwater when you were working? No. Okay, no. okay. Uh, a lot of their paperwork still said it. A lot of their, you know, I've got, got IDs, you know, that still say it, but it officially because of um, some incidences or T-shirt changes, if you will, uh, they moved to uh, Z to Academy and then Academy to Constellus Group. Now, the head of Blackwater was Eric, is it Price or Prince? Prince, EP. Did you know him personally? No, no. He was uh, he was out of the country or completely off-site. Like, Have you even met him? I've never met him. Okay. No, he, uh, by that point, he was on to bigger, better things. He's dealing with Saudi Arabia now and, like, the whole bit. So he, he had to make his distance um, from the situations that were happening and politically, but um, pretty much everybody else who was there with him was still there after uh, the Iraq incident and all the T-shirt changes. It was all the same people. Nothing nothing really changed except him. Yeah. yeah. Um, what was it that made you finally hang it up in 2000? You said 2011? Uh, with the private side, it was 15. Oh, I'm sorry. It was, well. Had you just made your money and had enough or? Yeah, I had started moving into other ventures. I started moving into the brewer's table and, um, a hotel thing and, uh, was genuinely, as I started to get older, was like, what am I missing all of this stuff for? I think it was another instance of, uh, growing comfortable with what you've got. Like I was just saying, I, had quite a bit of money and was like, it became, I would love this money to now I've got this money. Why am I doing this? You know, now, fa fairly rapidly. By the time you hang it up, how much money are you making? You started off making what? 180 ish. How much are you making by the time you're done? Uh, they had the state department had come in and, and re-regulated and they started to really like zone in on their business side of it. So, um, they probably cut it by, 20, 25%. Oh, so, so you're actually making less by the time you're leaving. Less. For okay. Sure. Yeah, they've, they've, they've closed in on it and then started the, you know, the taxation just like it was an American uh, deployment. Or which, which leads me to my next series of questions I wanted to talk to you about. I'm going to ask one question and follow it up with some smaller questions, but why is it, 
why is a company like Blackwater, why was your job needed? Because as an outsider, as a dumb civilian watching the news, what I hear from you is I was making eighteen to twenty thousand dollars a year as an army soldier. Yeah. I get out now making ten times that doing similar work for a private company, which is still getting paid by taxpayer money. Why why does that exist? Why do I need a private company to go and do that instead of having the army do it or a state department security detailer or whoever provide that role instead? Uh, my take on that is that now I think that there's very little reason for us, for them at this point to be doing what they do. It could be done by somebody else, but in the beginning, uh, they weren't in camo and they could do the things that the military couldn't do without getting in trouble. So in the beginning, you didn't want U.S. soldiers flying around in little birds and yanking people up and doing certain things if they got caught doing them. If you get, if you... That plausible deniability plausible was worth deni the cost? Is, is really, really big. Uh, so they, they offered up... EP offered up a force of people who no, what's what's EP? Eric Prince. Okay. Uh, offered up a force of people who weren't in camo, who could do any and everything. And then with a smaller unit always comes more specialization. Mm -hmm. So with a bigger unit like the U.S. Army, like regular infantrymen or regular truck drivers, pretty much only do that. But when you move up to an organization like this and you go through their, their training, then you become cross-trained. And so now you're not only a truck driver and an infantryman. You're a truck driver who can pick somebody off with a rifle. Yes, and an, you know, and an infantryman and an executive protection specialist and somebody who can run a gun on a helicopter and somebody, you know. So it was this uh, smaller unit, more elevated skill uh, that I think was the reason why they... About the money what was did. what was the Blackwater training like? Uh, they, How long was it? I guess I'll start with. They have their own. Uh, they've got more than one facility, but their major facility is in Moyoc, North Carolina, and uh, it's ranges anywhere from advanced firearms and combat techniques to uh, medical skills to um, advanced offensive and defensive driving. they got their own race course out there yeah. uh, where you can learn to... You do that too? Oh, man, it's awesome. It was <laughs> one of the coolest things I've ever got to do. What kind of car um, are you driving? They've got you in the old, like, uh, 350 Defenders or the Crown Vicks for a lot of it. They okay. just purchase all of these vehicles yeah. uh, where the engine's still running, where they're beat up, and uh, they run you through courses um, on-road, off-road, uh, pit maneuvers, uh, driving backwards from the passenger seat, uh, J-turns, and then they put you in these uh, Land Rovers and you do off-road courses where they just dig you in and force you to get out and, and, and vehicle exchange and all these crazy drills. And then at the end of it, in the vehicle that you were in, they uh, do ramming maneuvers where you have to ram your vehicle into the side of another vehicle to teach you how it spins and what's going on, and they just, like, crush the thing and put it in a pile. Wow. Yeah, so it's pretty awesome. So how long does the training go? Uh, the training is, I think at this point, 45 days. Okay. So you get paid uh, for the whole time that you're training at a, you know, discount rate and uh, pass or fail. You know, in the, in the, in the fail could be anything... They do a 
a three-tiered system. So you've got peer review, you've got uh, your actual academic testing, and then you've got uh, instructor review. So if you fail any of those two, three of two of those three things, they uh, can can, yeah, can you. send you home. So if you, if you do something, and it can just be one. If you do something crazy, and one of the instructors decides that you're uh, you're a little wire, wired incorrectly, they'll they'll go ahead and just send you home. Yeah. And they, and they have they take no authorization, no paperwork, no nothing. They just say, hey, stand up, it's time for you to go, and they put you on a plane. Damn. Um, that's another good thing about it is they can they have a weed out process that's a lot more uh, a lot more strict than the military. Yeah, with the military you get some some shit bags that fall through the cracks. Sure, it just it like I said it baffles me to a degree that from a military spe- perspective, twenty twenty five percent of our budget is goes to our defense. And to my understanding, that doesn't include the billions and billions we spend on companies like Blackwater. Um, As a dumb outsider, I don't understand why Johnny Diplomat needs a private contractor when we spend X amount to the State Department and their security forces and the military. I I, I get what you're saying to a degree, the plausible deniability. Um, But at the same time, Plausible deniability also include would would suggest a limited degree of oversight. Was that your experience there? In the beginning, yeah, there there was a, a limited degree in the beginning, and then the State Department came in and and really started hammering down. They wanted uh, one of their officials in each one of our vehicles, and things started to rapidly change. I mean, all the way down to the food. Everything just got worse because they were pumping as many people as they could into this situation, um, and I a lot of a lot of cooks in the kitchen type deal. Yeah, yeah. I, I think to answer your question more appropriately, I would say that um, with the regular military, the money's followed. With this, the private um, goes back to private people. And I think it, it, just like with the military, like what we were doing in Iraq, um, I think it's important to note how many private hands are involved. So as an example, an HVAC company or Brown and Root, Stewart and Stevenson, any of that, these are paramilitary companies, right? So they, they send people over that do HVAC. They put together AC systems for these so tents. So basically, the you, you grow up, or you grow up, you you come up, um, Army, Marines, whatever, you get out, now you're making 100 grand a year to be a guy who installs ACs, but also knows how to shoot an M4. Well, well, there's that side, and then there's also the private side of the money. So let's say you are Dick Cheney or any of the rest of the guys who are actually involved in this private security process, right? So a lot of the guys who decided on the war or made, you know, epic decisions about the war also have private um, interest in the war. They have private money, and they own majority stocks in a lot of these companies. So why wouldn't you send private people over under your organization instead of the Corps of Engineers or someone in the military when you're looking to get an 
you know, of your money back or you've got the private contract. So you own a, let's say you're a politician, you own a majority stock in Stuart and Stevenson. Why wouldn't you want that private company making diesel engines instead of the military making diesel engines when all of that money is going to go to your bank account instead of coming out of taxpayer dollar? Let me ask this a little bit different way. Um, President Josh. Sir. Knowing what you know, having done what you've done, would you be relying on these companies like we we did during that time and to a, I guess to a lesser degree we're, we're doing now? I don't think there's anything wrong with the companies at all. I think they're fantastic companies. I think there's something wrong with the system. I don't believe that we should be handing out private dollar in the way that we are on the backs of U.S. soldiers. I think that we send U.S. like, what are we still doing in Iraq? What are we still doing in Afghanistan? We can say that it's about some type of freedom, that it's about some type of, of security for what could happen. But at some point, we've had people over there for so long doing so much that you have to question, are we making, are, are, are a very small number of people getting unbelievably wealthy on this process? And I think the answer to that is undeniably yes. That I mean, you you made out handsomely. I made out handsomely, but I made a minute fraction. Sure, sure, yeah, of, of course. What someone who owns a fantastic stock in any of these private organizations, any of these private companies, does. Or Eric right. Prince. Or EP. Totally, Eric Prince was. Yeah, he made an absolute fortune. Yeah. So I think it comes down to greedy politicians being comfortable with this process. Like, if you were one of those politicians who owned majority stock and or you know just a fraction of stock in multiple private companies and those companies were over there making you a killing and all you had to do was keep signing off that we need to be in this war or this conflict or whatever word you want to use for it would you or would you not continue to do it yeah and that's what they're doing you know what's crazy is beyond that um i'm gonna take a little bit of a left turn but our our congressman um and I'm not sure how far this stretches into the executive branch, but I know for a fact our, our Congress, insider trading is illegal. If I own, they say. if I work with a company, I can't tell you, hey, we got this big thing coming, you need to invest. That's illegal. However, if you're a congressman and you know, oh, we're about to pass this legislation that's going to make company X crash or company Z skyrocket, totally legal for you to pump all your money into that stock as the person legislating the potential outcomes ahead of time. Totally legal for you to make those investments. Yeah. Um, so yeah, so if I know I'm about to sign off on a big Blackwater contract, I'm going to go buy a bunch of Blackwater or Z or whatever their yeah. name of the day is. I'm going to go buy a bunch of their stock completely legal. Why wouldn't you? Yeah. If you know the tank that operates at the time or the bombs that are up, any of the above. That's got to be made illegal. And I would assume you'd the cash to do it. But, but they already know because they're the ones funding the legislation. So all they have to do is funnel that through a secondary source. It might be illegal for them, but if their lawyer does it on half of their financial you, advisor. What's crazy is it's not even illegal. No, no. So, um, so again, I think it's the system and not so much the companies themselves. The companies exist because of the system and not the other way around. In my in my estimation, working with Blackwater Z Academy Academy, Academy whatever name they're because they bought a uh, Triple Canopy, 
Oh, so they've only gotten bigger? They've only gotten way bigger. They awesome. bought out like That's their fantastic. only real competitor. They <laughs> um, great. <laughs> That's cool. Um Do you do you believe How do I ask this? Um having seen how it works from the inside that whiskey getting to you oh man is it um (laughs) (laughs) um, josh and i've been sitting here enjoying his his aged his aged bourbon uh for the past over an hour Mm -hmm. um good living yeah it's it's great it's also going to necessitate a part two of this fucking podcast (laughs) thanks a lot um job security right <laughs> yeah. That's what we're really talking I'm about. I'm not here. paying Blackwater money for this fucking podcast, I can tell you that. <laughs> He's not even paying for my gas. No, I he mean. is not. He is a cheap son of a bitch. Oh. Um Tell you what, I, given all the the bourbon that's been consumed at this point, I actually I'm going to pivot. Um we'll we'll continue this in a little bit more sober context. Um and we're already over an hour, and I really want to get to this because you've got a restaurant grand opening this Sunday. Oh, we do, we do. The Brewers Table in Austin, Texas. Um, I've yet to get my tickets. Are they sold out? No, we're not sold out. We're not sold out, but we're real close. S- save two for me. I'll I'll get them either this evening or tomorrow. You can get your own tickets. I'm paying for my gas. I'm <laughs> advertising your fucking restaurant in this <laughs> rinky-dink podcast, no, I dog. It. I got you, dude. You know, <laughs> I got you. Um. There's a lot more I want to ask about the the Blackwater and in your army and just everything. I think you're a fascinating dude, but I, I do want to pivot and take a little bit of time to talk about the restaurant. But I also want to talk about. So you you get out of Blackwater, you've made a handsome little sum of money. Yeah, I got a little purse. Yeah. yeah. What? How do you go from army to Blackwater mercenary? <laughs> To I'm going to be a restaurant tour. How does that you get? A, how does that happen? What What's your train of thought? Well, we talked about some of the childhood and some of the bad things, and <clears throat> and we all know that even with the bad comes the good, and you should be able to pull the the good out of any situation. And uh, one of the goods, one of the one of the greats of my childhood was that my mother and my grandmother both really knew how to cook. They were fantastic at it. So I spent a lot of time in the kitchen with them. And then it became a passion um, in the service. I would bring soldiers back with me that were stuck at Fort Hood or, or Fort Polk that were from Thailand or, or Wisconsin, which might as well have been the same distance away at that point, couldn't get home. I would uh, bring them back to uh, southeast Texas with me, and I would cook for them, and, and we would have big meals and good times. So uh, my social life kind of revolved around the kitchen. So now at this point, I, I love to cook. I've got some food groups. and uh, what, what do you mean by food group? So I'm, I'm in, I started one organization and I'm in another one where a group of us get together once a month and we have a spreadsheet and we all rotate out on who hosts the food group and the person who's hosting gets to pick what the theme is. And is this be, a veteran thing? or No, no, oh, okay. no just, just uh, Circles Friends. Uh, I made the one and the other I found online and uh, they're very similar. So we... we One's more structured, but the ones with our friends, we just kind of, uh, whoever's hosting picks the theme. It could be um, in February, we did aphrodisiacs. So it could be anything from oysters. that to, yeah, yeah <laughs> oysters, chocolate, you know, sure. uh, that whole bit. And then um, 
it can be anything from that to summer food. So we, we, we do that and we all get together. So uh, it's it's a fantastic time. You you pick the space and you pick the the, the food and, and people get to step out of their comfort zones. So I've got quite a bit of experience, even though I'm not a classically trained. So I, I met um, Jake Maddox, the owner and founder of the Brewer's Table, back when I was still deploying uh, with, with the private side. And he... Uh, he was incredible, and he's a um, Marine, so we, we hit off in that way, and he uh, he sold me on it, man. He sold me on it big. He, he's, he had a concept for what this space was going to be like. It was going to be different in uh, personality, in mental and physical awareness, in uh, service and appreciation, you know, all of the above, so... Um, Met him when he was still working at Salt and Time, and he had yeah. this, he had this big dream, and, and I said, "Okay, let's go." So did he approach you and go, "Hey, I know you serve in the military. I know you you got all those fat Blackwater dollars." No, nah, he he didn't know about the money. Throw me a couple bucks from my restaurant. <laughs> like, how does that? Yeah, he he didn't really know about the money. He was approaching uh, any and everybody that he could. Um, he knew that I was deploying, and uh, I think I was initially before we knew each other well just another you know notch on the post for him to you know put his feelers out and can uh, you can you tell me and i know this is nosy can you tell me how much money you personally ballpark have in this like how what, or if you don't want to give me that what percentage of uh it's six digits okay so um initially it was it wasn't that much but then as we grew. Uh, mm-hmm. I continued to to move in, just kind of uh, hedging my bet a little. But I was the very first investor. And uh, now, are you just an investor? Or do you have a title with the Brewers Table? Now I have a title with the Brewers Table. Initially, we because you're not on the website. What the fuck's with that? I'm, I don't know, man. I'm not. Who, who do I? I what what angry email do I need know, to send on your behalf? I'll fix it. I'll fix it. You know, <laughs> it's not. I went looking for you the other day, actually. No, man, it, it's not something I'm concerned with. Yeah. Uh, well, what is your, what is your fancy title, though? I'm uh, the peer support specialist for the Brewers Table. Well, so that's I, uh, it, it's not a that's tra- a bullshit title, but what it, does it, it seems mean? like it, right? <laughs> so it actually, my card says peer support slash spirit animal. So, Get the fuck! Shut yeah. up! Yeah, you want to see it? Do no, I, yeah. I do want to see it, but also fuck you. That's not a real title. <laughs> yeah, quite, quite. It is because uh, we. Yeah, it's all a construct, right? We we get to, we get to make up, me. we get to make up our own shit. So, um, so so what does I, a peer support spirit animal do? Like, what what is your role? Once I got out, uh, once I stopped contract work, I uh, started putting myself back through school, uh, psychology and social work with a specialization in PTSD because I continue want to deal with soldiers. So, um, when so you're we, getting a psychology degree while running a re- while effectively owning a portion of a restaurant, yes. Okay. Why not, man? <laughs> you know why not? So this is why you fascinate uh, me, dude? <laughs> Jake had this grand idea that we were going to be this place that was different than all the rest of the F and B food and beverage places uh, in the city and maybe even the nation. So we were going to mix food and beer in a way that it hadn't been done. And we were going to use old school American uh, oak fooders and we were going to do all this stuff. No, I'm an idiot. What's an oak fooder? Uh, um, an American oak fooder is it's a aging. It's a big wooden barrel, right? So a hmm. lot of places when you see breweries, they're got stainless steel or copper. Oh, okay. You know? So we're using um, um, fooders. We're using wood. Okay. Right? So, so uh, when you say food, you're talking you you're brewing your beer in oak barrels. In 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 oak barrels. Yeah. Okay. And then the aging, so it it actually lends different flavors and complexity and body, uh, which is it's very old world, you know, European yeah. European style. So he's telling me about all these things, and I don't fit into this, right? I'm not a brewer. I'm not classically trained. I love to cook, but it's not my place. 
Um, so I said, I, I, I want to be a part of this. I want to have a, a, a place where I fit and where I'm, where I feel home. And he, you know, we talked about it for a long time and this was now, how do you, three years ago. What's his name? Uh, Jake Maddox. How do you know Jake? Uh, we met when he was working at Salt and Time, which is a fantastic Just, you place. You were going there as a customer? I was and going there as a customer. Started up a conversation? He was running their beverage program at the time and he's been all over the place. He was at Anchor in, uh, California and you know he's kind of followed the beer scene across the nation as it's evolved and ended up here okay um so I was doing the psychology and the social work uh so at the, so I started looking into F&B like seeing maybe where I fit so I'm looking into food and beverage and I realized that there are so many similarities to soldiering and PTSD that it's really striking like the divorce rates the drug habits the depression the suicide rates they're all uh, really, really high, just like in, in the military. So I thought, man, if there's going to be a place that I fit, it's going to be here. So I started doing work and um, developed a, an anonymous survey and uh, we're building recreation, uh, sports teams for the staff. Um, we're, we're one of the, might be one of the only F&B places in Austin that's uh, offering insurance to our employees. Oh, that's great. Two connected days off. Now, are you, are you guys doing tips? Yes. Yeah, yeah. Are you guys paying them the the two fifteen or whatever? Are you they're making the two thirteen and tips, and we paid for half of their insurance. Okay, and they get two connected days off a week when whenever possible, so that they can actually have a life and go somewhere when sure. they want to. And during the weekdays, we're only open till ten, so that they can be home with their families. And all of this is abnormal for the situation. Sure. So my position is to facilitate all of that and then to offer up my counseling to the staff members. So I spend a lot of time sitting around with the staff off hour. Um, I'll meet them at their other jobs if they have them or wherever they would like to meet where they feel safest. And we talk about anything from their families to what's currently going on at the brewer's table and, and really uh, learn as much as I can about them and, and offer them the ability to, to reach out. So peer support. <laughs> it's really fake. Fuck you, you have spirit animal in your title. Eat me. Eat me. <laughs> oh, man, this is what jealousy sounds like, you guys. Um, there's much about your life I'm jealous about. There's a lot about your life I am not jealous about. Understood. But The good and the bad. You've lived a very interesting life. Um, for people who might be listening here in the Austin area, what kind of cuisine can I expect from the brewer's table? Oh, man. So I've looked at your menu, but maybe people listening have not. So currently we're doing a lunch and dinner. Once we get back from New York, we're going to be, uh, we're going to open up brunch, but, um, I want a VIP table at brunch. Oh man. It's going to, it's actually my favorite menu. Yeah. I'm really excited about it. Uh, so we've got a farm to table American, but also Spanish, European flair. Springdale farm at all? Yes. We use, uh, any and every local resource that we can. We've, we've got a local vendor for our rabbit that goes into our rabbit carnitas with a pig's blood mole that is incredible. Uh, we local source our venison, everything that we can down Mm. to the point to where the spent grain from the beer that we're making is milled down and dried and turned into the bread that we're serving the venison tartare with that we locally sourced or the rest of the spent grain is sent off to a farm and fed to specific pigs that we've purchased that so that it's fed so our it's all product full circle. and then it comes back around to us. So we're trying to be um, really aware of our impact on on the community and the society and uh, give back in, in any way that we can. Let me ask you this. Um, as, as the resident spirit animal, 
<laughs> I'm never going to let you live that I, down. Yeah, I can't believe I, you told I, me that. I know, that. I know you're not. <laughs> you're getting a business card when we get down I here. want one. Um, do you ha Have you had any input into the menu, into the food served, or are you more so removed from that? Because I know you're a big foodie. So, uh, Or is it more, hey, Josh, test, taste this out. What do you think? Or what is your input into the food served? My initial input into the food is at the test kitchen, so I don't uh, not not being classically trained, I don't I don't play that role. Um, Chef Zach is in charge of that, and his sous um, take care of that. No, so privately, Chef Zach and I have done private events. We've um, you know catered uh, in, in the meantime, and there's also been a lot of pop ups that the brewer's table has done to keep things uh, rolling. I've while yet we to were. see one invite my way, dude, because most of them were out of the state. We were at the... Uh, I could buy a plane ticket full. Man, you're going you gonna to come to New York? No, but it's the thought so. that counts. So, you're right. You're right. Uh, <laughs> so, yeah, we did, we did a pop-up in the uh, Museum of Food and Drink. We did one in New Belgium and Colorado. We did a lot of different pop-ups, and, and, and I'm always in the kitchen there. But when it came down to the brewer's table, uh, actual menu, this was Chef's Axe Baby, and, and nobody was going to get in the way of that. So okay. my only... Uh, I just don't know how much... You know, when you're throwing down... When I hear I'm... I say this as a broke person, but if I'm throwing down six figures, I expect my voice to be heard. Well, that happens a lot in this industry that you get someone who's an investor and they come in and they don't understand the atmosphere. And, and they run like, their mouth, a little, and they, their and, opinions a little yeah, too much. And, and it's, and it's, it's, it, it ain't right. I you know what it. I mean? Like, so if, you had the wherewithal to at least, you have your opinions, but let them do them. Oh, when it comes to the rest, I, I know when to shut the fuck up. Yeah. Like, I, I, I know when to play that role. Um, so I found... Through hard work, I found a niche where I fit, and then I let everybody else do theirs, right? So I have to show what my side is on the peer support by my actions, and everybody else has got to do the same instead of me jumping in on somebody else's Kool-Aid because I could work for the next 15 years and not have the information that ShiftZack has. Or, so your job is, is to keep the staff happy, which keeps the customers happy, which yes. keeps them ordering the food, which people who know more than you put together can do their jobs without all of the distraction and the bs and the stress and the the you know like he said she said it keeps all of that out of the way keeps people happy and when mm -hmm. you do that you you keep people uh entertained and involved so you're basically the restaurant therapist i'm the restaurant therapist yeah awesome yeah so we had you know i had to find a way a good good way to to say that to put that so i, I went with peer support are you <laughs> are you i assume you're not collecting a paycheck for your job no this is all just facilitating your investment, if you will. Totally. I have an active uh, participation in my investment. Yeah. Yeah. And I assume it's just fulfilling in and of itself. Absolutely. If you had no money into this and they'd come to you and, and said, hey, this is something we could use, would this still be something you were doing? I think that it would. It. Um, I enjoy food that much and i have um, the friendships that i've made with them i would have i would have done the same they would just be giving me more food yeah right yeah so i assume if i go to brewer's table and i get a shitty server i have you personally to blame oh, you let me know <laughs> I, I i can take care of situations like that we we have a uh, train and retrain well we're, we're coming up on an hour and a half it's starting to get a little lengthy people tend to lose lose attention about this point i wouldn't have made it past the hour i hope you i hope you listen a little <laughs> bit longer on this one dog okay um this has been awesome i've i've gotten thoroughly buzzed with you you got to come back and do another episode or two i've got a lot more questions for you um i would love to and i'm gonna ask you some next time 
You need to dig off in the graves a little bit. Do it. I dare you. All right. Um, Josh, I'm I'm really thankful you came out. Thank you. Thank you so much. Um, I'm gonna be there on Sunday with your big grand opening. Come on, I'm actually uh going to be running the axe throwing lanes. I built two axe throwing lanes out there, and uh, that's where you'll find me drinking uh, Drew's beers and throwing axes. I'll throw a couple axes with yes, you. Yes, you will. You better. Um. Josh, thank you so much for coming on. It never hurts to ask. We're going to do this again. We're going to dig deeper. Evidently, you're going to try to dig on me. Good luck. Yeah, let's go. Um, it's been an absolute pleasure, and I'm ready for round two. Josh Kemp, the Brewers Table, uh, grand opening Sunday, June 9th? Yes. Um, 11 to 4. If you want uh, food tickets, uh, we're only doing one specific meal. Chef Zach's got a surprise. So you can get those tickets online at thebrewerstable.com, or uh, if you just want to drink, just come on out and drink. This is probably going out after your grand opening. Um, Brewerstable.com, anything else you want to tell the people listening who want to come check out the restaurant? I think the restaurant speaks for itself. Once you uh, walk into the place, it it, it's, it speaks for itself. So, yeah, awesome. come, on, come on out and try us out. Josh Kemp, soldier, uh, mercenary extraordinaire, restaurateur. Spirit animal. Spirit animal. <laughs> Thanks so much for coming on. We're going to do this again. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you, sir.